This is City AM Unregulated. I'm Emma Hazlitt. And I'm Zach Meir on this week's show, Getting Out of Tricky Situations. Jose Escobar was, was kidnapped in, uh, in Ecuador. He went out the back window of the hut they were keeping him in and made his way through the jungle and got out of the guerrilla territory. We're joined by Chris Voss, the FBI's former lead international kidnapping negotiator. There's an interesting aspect of business to every kidnapping because kidnapping is a business. And Natalie Reynolds, founder of Advantage Spring. How you respond to no defines you as a negotiator. Instead of viewing no as the end, we should be viewing no as the beginning. Welcome to City AM Unregulated. We're joined by the FBI's former lead international kidnapping negotiator, Chris Voss. He joins the show by Skype to talk about his book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. We're also joined in the studio by Natalie Reynolds of Advantage Spring and the author of We Have a Deal. Welcome. You both founded businesses that help their clients in negotiations. Chris, your background is in the FBI. What can you apply from terror and hostage negotiations to day-to-day business deals? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, uh, we originally started doing it uh, as I was teaching at Georgetown University and now at USC in the MBA program. I mean, all my students are in business, so they apply it every day. And it's it's really just a matter of uh, teasing the deal out, getting the other side to talk to you more, which is what a hostage negotiator does. He gets you to talk and, uh, and gets you uh, to trust him more, increase trust and negotiate at the same time. So It's a variety of hostage negotiation skills that really open up business deals very well. Could I just ask you a cheeky question, because it wouldn't be me if I didn't. Uh, This book, uh, to me, uh, could be worth millions, uh, both to people on an everyday basis, uh, negotiating their job, uh, corporates, uh, other people like that. Uh, Why are you giving away the secret? The more the world is a better place for negotiation, I mean, the more we all prosper. Everybody I do business with, I want them to make money. So, you know, it's not about I win and you lose. It's about a way that uh, I can win with you and, and everybody's better off. So in the long run, it's long-term greed. Huh. Chris, one of the things that I found absolutely fascinating was this concept of calibrated questions. Can you kind of talk a little bit more about that and how you word these magic questions? In reality, every single question you ask has an emotional impact on the other side. It creates, it either encourages them, it makes them feel stronger, it makes them worry about what they're uh, getting themselves into if they if they answer it. I mean, literally every single question you ask is going to cause some sort of an emotional reaction. If I ask you a question where the answer is yes, it's going to make you nervous. You're going to worry about um, what you've let yourself in for. <laughs> if I ask you a question where the answer is no, you feel better because you just protected yourself. So if I ask you a what or a how question, that actually empowers you because you feel like you're enlightening me. So everything is calibrated to uh, to create an impact. And if you don't know what kind of an impact your questions are asking, I mean, it's a little it's a little like shooting in the dark. You really don't know what uh, where it's going. So can you give an example of a situation where you've used questions like this? Well, an, an example of a calibrated question where I'm trying to get you to talk to me more but uh, you're going to feel encouraged is, uh, you know, how, how should we accomplish this? How do we proceed? Uh, you feel empowered if I ask you how to do something. Um, if there's something I want to know, what made you do it? I really want to ask you why, but uh, asking someone why makes them feel defensive and accused, and that's almost always bad. You know, I'll simply calibrate that a little bit. I'll adjust it. I'll say, what made that a good idea? 
again, me asking you that is going to make you feel empowered and it's going to make you want to answer. And I begin to have a, an effect on your mood with literally everything I say. Oh, the question I wanted to ask was, um, I mean, I, I met a lot of people in the financial area who you know, they, they publish their books on how to get rich quick on you know day trading or investing. Uh, and uh, for them, they say, you know, they wake up in the morning, eight o'clock, they look at the market, uh, buy a few million shares, sell them, and then, you know, they're off to the gold course by 10, having made 50K. Um, they are clever people. And for them, they could probably do that without their book. And it's just it's just a natural thing to do. You are a very clever, you know, you're clearly a very clever person, a very intelligent person. For you, you're doing what comes naturally to you. If I'm, if I, my IQ is not so high up the scale, I can have the answer to negotiation right in front of me or right in your book, but I'm not able to apply it. Yeah, you know, well, you, you make an interesting distinction. I'm not sure if you saw it. And there's a difference between IQ and EQ. Um, IQ is like your height. Nothing you can do is ever going to change it. You're only going to be so tall. We've all got EQ and we can all develop EQ. I mean, I don't do this naturally. I mean, I, I do it because I practice and I worked at it. Uh, the data out there indicates to us these days that uh, EQ is more important for success than IQ, and we can continue to develop our EQ, our emotional intelligence, right up into through our mid-80s or even, our, in, I'm sure, into our 90s. And if you work at this stuff, you can, get, you can get good at it very quickly. Natalie, do you find that EQ comes into your negotiations as well? Absolutely, and, and I think I'd really back up what Chris is saying there, that um, you don't need to be a genius to be a brilliant negotiator. And in fact, one of the things I'll often say to my corporate clients is you should be investing in your people because if they can go out and negotiate more effectively for you, you are going to be more successful. Your business is going to be more successful. However, you do, shouldn't just limit negotiation expertise to people in your business who are the brightest and the smartest. Everybody can learn this skill, and it is about practice the more you do it the easier it becomes and the classic cliche that I use with people is that negotiation is like a muscle if you never use it when you're then called upon to use that muscle maybe in a contract negotiation or a salary negotiation it's gonna hurt but actually if you if you use that muscle a little bit every day you look for chances to practice when you're called upon to do that negotiation it's gonna feel that much less painful What's the first piece of advice you give to your clients, Natalie? The first piece of advice that I always give to my clients is not to underestimate how frequently we negotiate. I think a lot of people make the assumption that it's always the high stakes stuff that, that we negotiate. So maybe you know, from Chris's background, hostage negotiations or multi-million pound contracts. But we, you know, we negotiate every day from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed. Um, and I try and get across to people that it's, it's not just a process. Negotiation is about people. And unless you understand the psychology of why we do what we do at the negotiation table, what we bring of ourselves to the negotiation table, you can learn that process. But if you haven't understood the people side of things, you may as well forget it. Um, I want to delve into the, the hostage element of your book, Chris, because um, I've got to say the, the kidnapping stories kind of kept me on my toes during the whole book. Um, which famous ones? I mean, you talked a lot about ones in, that happened in the Philippines. What, what are the kind of ones that you felt our business readers could learn the most from? Well, you know, th there's, a, there's an interesting aspect of business to every kidnapping because kidnapping is a business. They operate as an organization. They have a division of labor. They have designated negotiators. It's a, it's a complete business. So, you know, one of, one of the more interesting ones was, um, you know, the use of personal pronouns I found to be 
it, it really jumped out at me in in the in the kidnapping negotiations. I mean, the more a negotiator you're talking to, you use singular personal pronouns, you know, I, me, my, the more important they try to make themselves in the process, the less influence they have on their side. There is, there's always a team on the other side. And if you're talking to someone on the phone who uses plural pronouns, you know, you can't get them to say I, me, or my to save his life. It's always we, they, and them. That's an extremely important person in the process. And Although the, 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 there's a myth of the decision maker because there's always a team on the other side and there's always deal killers on the other side. But if they use, uh, if they use plural pronouns a lot, they're really important. One of the ones that I found really interesting was that, um, you had Jose who was in the jungle. Um, and you, your negotiations went on for a few months, right? But Generally then, speaking, yeah. But then he escaped... Yeah, kind of just halfway through the away. negotiations. Can you kind of tell us a story of that and what you learned from that? Because I thought that was quite potent. Uh, Jose Escobar was was kidnapped in uh, in Ecuador, and his kidnapping was the first time that we really started to use calibrated questions uh, as a proof of life strategy. The, how do we know that 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 Pepe is his his nickname was Pepe is alive, and how are we supposed to pay if we don't know he's alive? Well, they never answered that question through the entire negotiation. We thought it was a failure. And afterwards, behind the scenes, we found out it had a massive impact on everything they did because they never got angry that we were asking the question over and over again. They actually collaborated much more on keeping him alive and taking better care of him because of the kidnapping. And he also escaped after he'd been held for about 28 days. And you know, that approach of getting them to collaborate to take better care of him and keep him alive actually was one of the things that contributed to his opportunity to escape. They became so immersed in the situation, in the uh, in the negotiation, that they paid less and less atten uh, uh, attention to his overall security. And he did a lot to make them much more comfortable with him as well. And their security became so lax that uh, the one night at 2 o'clock in the morning in the middle of a driving rainstorm, he went out the back window of the hut they were keeping him in and made his way through the jungle and got out of the guerrilla territory. You know, what we did was we effectively completely stalemated the other side's negotiation, um, and they weren't mad at us for it. They didn't understand what we'd done to them. You know, we took them from $10 million, a $10 million ransom, to zero in one conversation when we got a that's right out of them. You know, a, f a phenomenal summary, which is tactical empathy, and you get the other side to say that's right. It just sort of triggers a subtle epiphany, and the, and the epiphany it triggered on the other side was they didn't really know where to go there. And all and they respected us afterwards. Our, the, the, the terrorist actually called my negotiator on the phone a couple weeks afterwards and congratulated him from doing, for doing a good job and told him that he ought to get promoted. <laughs> so, you know, what we really learned from that is you can really hold your own very well in a negotiation and actually be respectful of, of a counterpart, no matter how despicable they might be, and effectively take them to a stalemate, and, they, and they, they're not mad at you for it. They respect you for it. So you can you can do the two currencies of respect and liking simultaneously, regardless of what the adversary is, who the adversary is in the conversation. I love the idea of somebody calling, calling up the negotiator and telling them they did a good job. That's brilliant. 
Um, okay, so I, I want to move on to Taylor Swift because obviously everyone can take inspiration from Taylor Swift, but I was surprised, Chris, to read that you're a fan of her negotiating skills. Um, can you can you tell us a bit more about that? What can we learn from that? Yeah, you know, um, she just did a wonderful job of using empathy and respect and admiration to then just dead on, point blank, confront a, a huge and for, formidable adversary. Um, she showed how confrontation can be done in a very elegant fashion, and instead of making the other side mad, which was Apple, which is no small player, one of the largest companies the planet has ever seen, and she made them stop and think without insulting them. Um, I thought it was brilliant. She, she, it was a very courageous thing for her to do. She didn't have to do it. And not only did she she stop them in their tracks, but she did it in such a respectful way that they went on to do uh, collaborations. And now she's clearly doing business with with them. They like her. They respect her. So, you know, you can have an extremely strong disagreement with a business counterpart and and confront them with it, completely confront them with it. But if you do it with respect and appreciation, you, you, she did what I call, she told the indisputable truth. What she wanted to say was, asking people to work for nothing is unfair. And that's indisputably true. But you have to put yourself in a position to be able to confront someone with the indisputable truth. She didn't say it judgmentally. She never said, um, you're bad people for doing this. She simply said, here's the truth. You've done great things for the music industry. You're phenomenal partners. What you're asking people to do right now is unfair, and and she she made her point. She continued to have a she continues to have a great business relationship with them. But arguably, Taylor Swift held uh, Apple hostage there. I mean, can a multi haters gonna hate? Sorry, it's because haters gonna hate. <laughs> I've lost my trail at all. Uh, can businesses be held hostage, Chris? Well, yeah, you, you make a good point. I mean, um, leverage is in the eye of the beholder. You know, leverage is such an emotional thing. Like I, I've always said, there's, uh, there's always leverage. Uh, another colleague has said there's no such thing as leverage. Another colleague says it doesn't matter what leverage they have on you. It matters what they think of the leverage you have on them. But so, I mean, but Taylor sort of struck while Apple was down as far as Apple can ever be down. They were trying to launch their streaming service. And uh, she said, you know, I, I'm not going to play ball. And they, they they probably thought, well, if she doesn't play ball, a lot of major stars are not going to do the same. And, and, you know, our our service is going to be doomed. So, yes, Taylor, come on down. You know what? And she said that without and the key was she didn't make a mad. She said it in a way where also in, in, in any public um, interaction, any public negotiation like that. The secondary con- consequences, the most important is, what is the community that's watching this gun going to think? Now, if she'd have made a bunch of accusations against them, called them names, been shrill in any way, the secondary impact on a larger community would have been poor and she wouldn't have drawn people to her side. When you confront someone publicly and openly like that, everyone also gauges on what is the onlook how is the onlooking community going to react and that's where some of the real strength is so if you do it in a respectful fashion all the onlookers people who are deciding what side to weigh in on they want to weigh in on the side of the person who d- handles things with the most class because they know at some point in time they may have a disagreement with them as well so it wasn't just that she was uh they were down 
It was also what kind of an impact on a larger world did her communication have? And and they knew that she had she had really outplayed him in, in that particular regard. She was conducting herself with much more class and it would draw more people to her side. And that's where real power came from. I mean, I think I'd jump in there, uh, Chris, as well, and say that for me, it was a really good assessment on Taylor's part of the balance of power. We know that Taylor Swift has a huge following and huge power, not necessarily traditional power in the business sense. You know, as time's evolved and social media has become a source of power, you know, what she says impacts people. And even a massive brand like Apple, you know, they must be aware of the power that that she brings to the table. And I, I, I agree. I thought she executed that eloquently, but I also think she had a thorough understanding beforehand of what power she had with Apple's customers. And you have views on Taylor Swift's close personal friend, Jennifer Lawrence, as well. I do, yeah. I I wrote an article for a newspaper over here um, giving some advice to Jennifer Lawrence. Not that I'm sure she'd maybe want my advice, but it it was based on the comments that she made in uh, Lena Dunham's uh, newsletter about how she had been very aware of not wanting to be seen as greedy or selfish by asking for a bigger salary, one that might match her male peers. And um, one of the things that I look at as alongside more general negotiation is gender and negotiation and also unconscious bias and negotiation more generally. So, you know, does the fact that, that I am a female, does that influence how I am perceived as a negotiator or how I actually negotiate? Now, to be clear, I don't believe that men and women are any better or worse than each other, but we are different and, and that's something we need to bear in mind. But there is something out there about the whole assertive aggressive dilemma when it comes to negotiations for women that the, the studies tell us, they're absolutely clear on this, uh, there is a social penalty attached to women that negotiate. We are seen as more greedy or more selfish than a man who might choose to negotiate in the same position. And so actually, you know, I think it's really great that Jennifer Lawrence put it out there that she had felt uncomfortable about negotiating because I think a lot of people do. But People don't admit it, particularly in business. They think it will make them feel weak. But actually, I think we need to maybe raise our hands a bit more and say, actually, I am struggling with this. I'm worried about how I'm going to come across. And then that way you can start to challenge those issues and tool yourself up to be the best negotiator that you can be. Okay, so Chris, you didn't ask me anything on on Reddit to promote your book. Um, A couple of great questions. What, What three tips did you give to help people avoid being kidnapped in the first place? You know, the first thing is not, not, not being held hostage by yes, where you're so desperate to want to hear yes that you don't hear anything else. Um, and, and, and yes, and because we're so desperate to hear yes, it's frequently used to try to lure us into bad deals. Although I think that it's been used on us as a lure so many times that we begin to get nervous as soon as somebody tries to get, to, get, get us to say yes. I mean, one, one, of the, one of the big things that you can always do is I love letting the other side go first. I mean, people are come to the table so focused on what they want to say. They, they probably aren't going to hear what you say until they've had their say anyway. And there's a real good chance that whatever they have to say is going to enlighten you. It's going to help you. It's going to give you an opportunity to see how you can be a better partner for them. So there's so many more reasons for letting the other side go first uh, than there are in trying to go first. 
Oh, goodness. I, can I just jump in there? Because I, I really disagree with that and, and I really disagree. Uh, so I, I know, I know. Um, so I spend a lot of time uh, trying to get people to overcome their fear of going first. And don't get me wrong, I don't think, you know, I'm not a subscriber to the view that you must go first every single time. But I do think there is an unnecessary fear of going first. And for me, it comes down to planning and preparation. If you have planned and prepared in the most effective way possible, you can prevent getting into a situation where maybe you haven't anticipated what they might be asking for or what they might be able or willing to agree to. And one of the things that I teach is obviously anchoring is is, is very, very powerful. Um, We are disproportionately impacted often by what the first person says. And and we've seen plenty of examples, particularly in a commercial context, where maybe I've been thinking of a number in my head that I'm going to ask for, but they get in first with a far lower number. Now, what I might then start to do, of course, is think, oh my God, well, I can't accept 35. I was going to say 55, but I can't say 55 now because they've said 35. Oh, God, what am I going to do? I'm going to look selfish if I say 55 or greedy. I know what I'll do. And I then open my mouth and I'll say, I can't do 35, but I can do 40. And I immediately revise down my expectations to more closely match theirs. But of course, often people's first position is an exaggerated version of what they want to achieve. It's not actually going to necessarily reflect the best that you could get. And and it's a funny one because I think anchoring and going first is a real bone of contention in the negotiation world. Some people, it is. Some people are very for it. Some people are very against it. My view is you should try and go first if you can. But if you can't, then just don't fall into the traps of of being overly anchored to their position. And, you know, as as Chris does say, rightly, um, you can use that as a little shred of evidence to start to build up actually where they're coming from and what their position might be. Natalie, can you um, t- tell us how many traffic tickets you've managed to talk yourself out of? <laughs> um, I have a pretty good hit rate on traffic tickets, actually. It's about 50-50. But again, to bring it back to, to negotiation, because I think that's actually about influencing, um, but also knowing your strengths and knowing your position, um, that if I have got anything in my back pocket that makes me more powerful and allows me to talk my way out of it, I will use it. I'll still give it a bloody good go even if I don't have any legs to stand on because often it's about actually speaking up and asking and challenging that gets you the result in the first place. But I have a pretty good hit rate anyway because my husband used to work in parking. I've got 100% hit rate. I don't drive a car anymore. (laughs) That's my approach. Chris, what's your record like on parking tickets? Well, you know, I got to tell you, that's almost not fair because I got a couple of insider advantages. I know what what would really get a, a police officer to relax and not give me a ticket. You didn't answer the question, Chris. You know, I I tell you what, I can give I give I give you two really quick ones. Go on. Um, and one time it was used on me when I stopped someone because I was a police officer before I was an FBI agent, and I stopped this woman, and she rolled down her window, and she looked at me, and she said, "Thank God." I am so happy to see you. You've just rescued me. <laughs> and at, she had me at that point in time. There was no way that I could give a ticket to a woman that was that happy to see me and who I just rescued. So you believed her, actually, did you? She might have been bluffing. She, well, you know what? Then I'd like to give her an Academy Award because she had me at hello. Uh. <laughs> Say I was in a position where I needed to negotiate a deal to force Mexico to pick an example out of thin air to pay for a wall separating its country from mine. How would you start that discussion? 
one of the things I, I feel really strongly about is that one of the ways to get people to do what you want is to get them to see the benefits in doing what you want. Um, so they need to feel satisfied and happy with the decision that you want them to make. And ideally, they're gonna, you want them to feel like that they're winning because of it. There's that lovely uh, phrase, isn't there? Negotiation is the art of letting them have your way. And I, and I think that's a lovely way of looking at it, that if you can, one of the best ways to influence is to get them to see this is why it benefits you. Um, and that's all about obviously doing your planning and prep, gathering as much data and information as you can so that you can then get them to see why this is going to work for them. But of course, in any situation like that, emotion plays a huge role. And it's so difficult to negotiate when the topic is an emotive one. Uh, and obviously, Chris will be able to comment on that uh, you know, very much. Um, but I think it's always about, you know, what's in it for you. Chris? You know, I, I've got a very close friend of mine who's an international banker, and he's as American as they come. He's loud. He's assertive. He has incredibly high emotional intelligence, and people love him around the world. And he, when he took over a company in Korea, as this loud, assertive American, his very first presentation to the, the employees who were understandably concerned, on his PowerPoint slide, he had translated into Korean at the top of the slide, what's in it for me? And they literally broke into applause because he understood that they were still human beings at the end of the day. So if, if, someone, were, if someone were ever crazy enough to make the ridiculous <laughs> claim that they could get Mexico to pay for the wall, <laughs> then uh, you'd have to come in from that approach. And if they could see what was in it for them, then, then you know, they might. If you could find a way to keep the Americans sure out of Donald their country, they might go it. for that. <laughs> Right. In Never Split the Difference, your advice is everything we've previously been taught about negotiation is wrong. For example, don't be rational. There's no such thing as fair. Compromise is the worst thing. Why do you say these things? They sound quite sensible at first glance. You know, we, we drive so hard to be rational. And every, you know, my Harvard brothers and sisters getting to yes is this eminently rational book. And, you know, to quote Mr. Spock from Star Trek, you know, logic and rationality are a butterfly flying in a breeze. They're just, every single decision we make is based on what we care about. Therefore, our decisions are emotional. And if you do, try to approach human nature and human interactions if it's, as if it's rational, you're wasting your time. Well, I was going to say, I modeled myself on Spock. I was a real um, hero for me. But uh, obviously, that's not the way forward. Uh, Natalie, do you agree with what Chris is saying? I do, and I also wanted to pick up on the word fair, actually, because I th I hear a lot of my clients, a lot of people that, that we you know we work with to improve as negotiators, they have the view that if they make a proposal and then finish that proposal by saying, and I think that's very fair, don't you? Uh, nine times out of ten, the reaction that I get from the other side is one of anger and frustration because I actually think fairness is a very personal thing. Um, and whilst we have this view that societally fairness is shared, you know, there's views of justice and transparency and doing the right thing, often in business, the definition of fairness isn't universal. And what could be fair to a buyer from a buyer's perspective, is probably not fair from the seller's perspective, at least not initially. And so I'm always very, very careful about selling fairness and using fairness as the, as the justifier to try and persuade the other side why they should do something because a lot of people don't like to be told what's fair. They have a view personally on what's fair. Don't try and sell fairness to them. Yeah, you know what? And I'd also like to, to, to go along with her comments on, on, on fairness because, you know, fair is the F word. 
Yeah. I mean, you, you somebody drops the f bomb in a negotiation, the 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 fair word. I mean, it it, it causes emotional reactions right away. And you know, I ask a lot of people pick a negotiation that the word the word fair is not thrown out. You could probably never find one. People have no idea what a huge impact that has, and it immediately ramps up the negotiation, the emotions in the negotiations. Uh, so, so Natalie, you're sat in your negotiations. You're you, you think you're making progress, and then suddenly somebody says no. What do you do? Do you know what my view is? Is that how you respond to no defines you as a negotiator? And actually, hearing no is the most dangerous part of a negotiation for many people, because as human beings, we have a neurological oversensitivity to rejection. So, put very simply, we remember the pain of no longer than we remember the happiness of yes, or it hurts to be rejected, as I'm sure we all remember. So, so the point is, is that actually, at the point at which you hear a, a no, often negotiators will then crumble. And they'll go, oh, God, really? OK, sorry, so what were you going to say then? And that's not how you should respond to a no. Instead, instead of viewing no as the end or the, the, the cut-off point, we should be viewing no as the beginning. No is your opportunity to explore what could be possible. No is a springboard to getting to yes. And actually, if you can start to retrain your brain to have less of a sensitivity to no, you can then start to be equipped to actually move on from that no. And often the best way to move on from that no is to ask a question. Why is that? How can I change that? What can I bring to the table? What would get you to a yes? So rather than viewing no as the end, view it as the beginning. But the other, the other, the other issue in, in job negotiations is you're asking for X amount a month and you get X divided by two-thirds. And that's, what, you know, that's, what's, that's on the table. Do you walk away or do you say, I'll take the uh, X minus two-thirds? How, how do you... I mean, how do you improve that? Did you just say, well, I was really looking for X and you know, I'll see you sometime? Or I mean, that, that tends to be the, the more typical situation, the compromise that neither of you probably like. Yeah, and, and often people, because they're fearful, I mean, negotiation's uncomfortable. Let's not move away from that. It is uncomfortable for a lot of people. They find it difficult and awkward and time-consuming and embarrassing. And so often when we hear them reject what we, we're asking for and they suggest something else, often our fear will just make us capitulate. But again, the point remains, at that point, if they came back with a counter that was not what I was looking for, I would use that as an opportunity to keep the conversation going. And if as a negotiator you can keep the conversation going, you, you're that much closer to getting a solution. Often the best way to get to where you want to be is to have lots of solutions. So, OK, so that doesn't work. How about this? How about that? Plan some moves in advance. Give yourself options. I mean, we found this to be a fascinating dynamic. And, and the first time in discussing this in a hostage negotiation community because I came across the book uh, Start With No and, and that was really just designed on letting the other side feel like they could say no. And we started to experiment with, well, what happens when someone actually says no? What kind of a reaction do you get? And one of my colleagues, I talk about her in the book, phenomenal female hostage negotiator named Marty Evelsizer. She was in a process, her boss was going to fire her from her hostage negotiation position because he was jealous of how successful she was in a position. And she asked a no-oriented question that in a thousand years until I heard it, I never would have had the courage to ask it. And she said, do you want the FBI to be embarrassed? And the guy said, no. And he didn't get angry. He became much more relaxed and open. And consequently, she kept her position. He didn't fire her. And as we've experimented more and more with the, nerd, the word no, it's amazing what people of all cultures 
are willing to say no to if it protects them in some way. We use it on a regular basis. The international stereotypes is that Arabs and Asians are uncomfortable with saying the word no. Well, it has to do with context because I get them to say no all the time. I ask them, have you given up on this project? And it doesn't matter what ethnicity, if they still want the project, they're happy to say no and move forward. So no is this crazy kind of counterintuitive tool that you can use to break open communications in a very positive way. I guess I'm going to use the tools I've learned today to negotiate myself a nice holiday or at least a cocktail. Either way, we're out of time. Thanks very much for joining us on Skype, Chris and Natalie, for joining us in the studio. Thank you. Well, you guys were delightful. Thank you for having me on. With thanks to Chris Voss and Natalie Reynolds, this has been City AM Unregulated. Remember, you can get the podcast on cityam.com or download via iTunes or Audio Boom to listen on the go. City AM Unregulated is an Audio Boom production.